Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Secular Buddhism Podcast. This is episode number 171. I am your host, Noah Roshetta. And today I'm going to talk about how to feel whole and complete. As always, keep in mind, you don't need to use what you learn from Buddhism to be a Buddhist. You can use what you learn to simply be a better whatever you already are. If you're interested in learning more about Buddhism, check out my book, No Nonsense Buddhism for Beginners, available on Amazon, or you can listen to the first five episodes of this podcast. You can find those episodes easily by visiting secularbuddhism.com and clicking on the link that says Start Here. If you're looking for a community to practice with and to interact with, consider becoming a patron by visiting secularbuddhism.com and clicking the link to join our community. So for today's topic, how to feel whole and complete, I want to start out by asking, why do we feel incomplete? Why do we feel like there's always something missing, something that's just out of reach? And life, however good it is, will be even better uh, when we can finally reach that one thing. The new job, a raise in our pay, uh, getting our companion or partner or spouse to uh, finally change this one character trait about them, or whatever it is, right? But there's always something that's just out of reach. So we're always reaching and striving to take life how it is and make it cross that threshold to where, um, you know, now I'm going to feel whole and complete when this or that happens. It's almost like we've been conditioned to believe that our starting point is one that is incomplete. We, we don't start out as whole. We start out as incomplete. And then you go around and you gather all these pieces and you're always looking for that one final missing piece. And I, I don't know exactly where or when or how that conditioning starts, but I think you can see it in in our society from multiple different angles. This uh, need to feel uh, rescued or saved, um, the need to be made whole. Uh, marketing always pushes this message, right? That here's this uh, thing that once you finally have this, then your life will be better. So before jumping into the psychology of all of that, I, I want to remind you of the Buddhist teaching of the five skandhas. I think understanding this will help us to understand how to feel whole and complete. The five skandhas are the teachings. It's the teaching that refers to what makes us who we are. So skanda is a Sanskrit word that translates to aggregate, heap, or multitude. An aggregate is something formed by the combination of many separate things. And the analogy that I use in the podcast and uh, in my book that I use a lot is the visual of a car made of many parts. And there is no actual separate entity called that's a car that exists without all of the parts. So again, just as a visual, take a car and disassemble it to all of its parts there's not one of those parts that you can go grab and say, this is it. This is the essence of the car. The car is all of them. And, and that's just how it works. So in a very real way, there is no such thing as a car. There's such thing as a car that's the sum of all of its parts. But 
none of those parts are the car. And this is a really powerful way to understand the nature of reality because all things are that way. Everything has causes and conditions, and we are no exception to that. Uh, we are the whole that is made up of various parts. So to understand the whole, uh, we must get to know the parts. So the teaching of the skandhas refers to the idea that there are several key components or parts that come together to make up the individual that we end up perceiving or experiencing as ourselves. In other words, the I or the me that I'm experiencing is the uh, sum of the various aggregates that make up who I am. And these are, in, in the classical Buddhist sense, these are form, sensation, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. So I want to talk about each of these real quick. Uh, form is the physical body. You can think of the five senses, our sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. Uh, from the Buddhist perspective, there is a sixth sense, and that sixth one is the mind. And you'll see here in a moment why uh, that's relevant in this discussion. But the understanding of the, of, of the form is that my physical form is not me. Uh, so next we'll go into sensation. It's what we experience through the contact of these sensing organs uh, with, the, with the external world. In other words, the interaction that takes place with the process of seeing or the process of hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and in this case, thinking, uh, this is the first place where conditioning arises. And the way it works is that when we sense something, there's a feeling associated with the experience of sensing. And that uh, feeling is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. For example, if I were to taste ice cream, the feeling associated with the experience might be uh, a pleasant sensation. And the conditioned response that arises is that I want more of it. And therefore, I take a second bite. So that's how this works for all six of the senses, uh, including, including the mind. And, you, and you'll see how this works with the mind because think about it. The, the mind does the same thing. The, the mind will detect a thought. A thought arises in the mind, and then the mind decides if that thought is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, right? This happens if you have a bad dream or a thought that triggers um, fear or a thought that triggers a pleasant thing. It, it works the same thing because the mind is a sense organ and the mind does uh, senses uh, thinking the way that the nose senses smell, the, the way the ears sense sound, and so on. Okay, so moving on to the third one, perception. Perception is the process where we become aware of something through the senses. I become aware that I like a certain flavor of ice cream, and I'm aware that I'm craving it. And this is the mind's process of indexing experiences and putting things into the database. And that says, here are all these things, all these experiences I've had. Over here on this left side, I've got all the, you know, I've cataloged all the index cards of the things that I like. Over here, I've got all the ones that I don't like. Uh, and then there's this random pile of neutral ones. I don't have to focus much on them because they're neutral. And something fascinating happens here because our brain has a natural tendency to give weight and to remember more clearly the unpleasant experiences compared to the pleasant ones or the positive ones. You can think of this as negative experiences versus positive experiences. The negative ones will stand out more. And I, I picture it like this taking place in my brain. 
So the part of me that indexes uh, these cards of experiences and catalogs them into the memory bank says, hey, this one here, look, this was really unpleasant. This was a negative experience. Let's highlight this to make sure we don't set ourselves up to experience that again. And the problem is that all the negative ones get highlighted and, and, and therefore they stand out more than the positive ones. If you're just glancing over at all the cards, the ones that stand out are the ones with all this bright highlighted ink. Uh, and since they're that way highlighted in my memory, I can't help but to fixate on them and think about them more than I will the positive cards. And that's exactly how the mind works, right? That's what we call the negativity bias. And it seems that we're hardwired this way. It's an evolutionary survival tactic. Um, and it makes sense, right? The, the From the evolutionary perspective, we needed to know that the, the sound of rustling in the bushes that uh, could have been a snake or a tiger is much more significant than, you know, the pleasant smell of the flower that you sniffed. So the mind catalogs one of those with very strong highlighted colors. And that's the negativity bias. That's how that works. The important thing to understand here with perceptions like, uh, or, or yeah, perceptions like sensations or like form is that my sensations are not me. My perceptions are not me. It's something that takes place that my mind does. So now let's go into mental formations. This is where concepts, thoughts, and beliefs start to form and develop. I'm aware of this experience that takes place that when I eat ice cream and I develop, uh, so I develop the thought that ice cream must be good for me because I feel good every time I eat it. So I start to believe that it's something that's good for me. I should probably eat it all the time. And I might go as far as to say if it's good for me, it's probably good for you. So I might start taking actions that uh, require you to have ice cream, more, more ice cream in, in your life too. And you can see real quickly how these mental formations that we develop lead to actions and the thoughts and beliefs that, you know, that I hold are intricately linked to what I'm going to end up saying and doing in my life. So if I want to understand or uh, have the ability to change the things that I say and the things that I do, it's imperative for me to understand what I think and what I believe. In other words, I need to really look at the mental formations. And as all the other ones, to remember my mental formations are not me. It's my brain doing what it does. It, it's a part of who I am, but you can't single that out and say, I am my brain formations. So that means my mental formations are not me. And that leads us to the fifth one. The fifth heap or aggregate is consciousness. And I like to think of this one as the uh, overall process the processing that takes place of all these aggregates uh, that are working simultaneously to give rise to the sensation of me as the experiencer uh, of all these things. So something as simple, again, as eating ice cream uh, can come together to give rise to the experience of sensing self, right? The, the self that processes this whole experience gives rise to the thought, I, I like ice cream. Uh, it's an automated response, uh, an automated process, and therefore uh, you can link consciousness to, to reaction or think of it as a reaction. I think of this part of me as the habitual me, the me that's on automatic mode that goes about doing things that I like to do, like buying ice cream without having to give it much thought. Our habitual tendencies 
end up being the result of this particular part of ourselves that in a lot of ways it's just working like a computer in the background trying to process everything and just get through life uh, while trying to enjoy more ice cream and I've used ice cream as the example in, on a, in all of these, but you can you can picture so many other uh, sense experiences, whether it's uh, tasting, like I use the example of ice cream, but you can think of sight, sound, smell, touch, uh, and, and thought, any of the senses. But again, the important thought here is my consciousness is not me. It's, it's a process that um, is one of many things that makes me me, but it's not me. So that's the summary of the teaching of the of the five skandhas. But I want to go into this a little bit more because, again, how to feel whole and complete, we need to first understand this very important thing about ourselves, which is that like the car, we are made up of many parts and we are none of those parts. So the me that is experiencing this present moment of being alive, it's merely the aggregate of several things made up of several other things. And they've all come together at this one specific place in space and time to give rise to the sense of self that I currently perceive as me. Here I am, the thinker of my thoughts. If I am the aggregate of my physical form and my thoughts and feelings and memories and personality, then perhaps I can spend time looking at each of those things to gain insight into the nature of why I am the way that I am. For me, it's helpful to simplify this into two main groups, two main categories, my body and my mind. And I like to think of this in the same way that I think of computers. If I were a computer, um, I am a combination of hardware and software. So my body and my mind work like hardware and software. And there's an interdependent relationship between the two because you need hardware in order to run software. If you understand how a computer works, you don't have a computer program without having the computer itself. So the hardware and the software. And I think we're the same. Your body, including your brain, is the hardware that runs your software, which you could think of as your mind. So if the body is the hardware, what is it that makes the body what it is? Well, we start with DNA. You know, that's the little recipe that our cells follow in order to become what they're going to be. Eyes become eyes, ears become ears, you know, and, and, and the physical you forms out of this. And I think it's important to remember that form is inherited. You know, for the most part, that means that you get what you get. The color of your hair, your skin, your eyes, the texture of your hair, the very sound of your voice, these are all things that uh, are part of the hardware that you inherit through uh, genetics. And uh, it's like, that's what you are. That's your, your hardware. Uh, we don't go about uh, changing that. It's, it's um, I mean, maybe to some degree, some small levels, but as a whole, the hardware you get is the hardware you get. So I like to run this thought experiment from time to time in my head. And I like to imagine, what if I could change aspects of my physical form? You know, I could change my hairstyle. That's an easy one. I could change the hair color. Um, I could put contacts in that change my uh, the color of my eyes. Um, I, I, I could create these different configurations of me in terms of physical form. But what if there were some that, you know, that you can't change, but let's just imagine that you could. 
What if I was able to change the sound of my voice? What if I was able to, you know, suddenly install some some kind of program in my brain that gives me the opera voice of of uh, Pavarotti? Or <laughs> what if I, uh, you know, there's so many combinations in this thought experiment. But literally any physical change. What if you didn't? What if you had hair? What if you didn't have hair? What if you didn't have hair, but suddenly you do have hair? Um, I tend to have really bushy eyebrows. That's part of my genetics. What if I didn't? Um, so I like to imagine these different configurations of me. And then the question that arises is, would that still be me? In other words, the me with a sudden, very deep voice, would that still be me? Yeah, it's me, but with a deep voice or a very high-pitched voice. And then I like to, to picture all these other potential physical changes. What if I was configured differently? from circumstance, circumstantial changes, uh, you know, in an accident. What if I lost a hand or a foot, or I lost my nose to frostbite in, you know, in a cold, in a cold environment, or um, what if I could no longer walk? You know, at, at what point would I uh, cease to be me? And at the heart of this thought experiment is this one single question. Is there a physical configuration where you would no longer be you? where I would no longer be me? And for me, I continually arrive at the same answer, which is no, there is no configuration where I would cease to be me. I would just be the new me and the new configuration of whatever that physical form is. If that's true, then I'm not my body, right? I'm, I am something other than my physical form. Okay, well then let's move on to the next one. If I'm not my, my form, then maybe I am my mind. So now we move on to that second category body and mind. So mind. If my mind is like the software, the feelings, the perceptions, the mental formations, and my overall consciousness, software is like programming. Therefore, my mind is programmed. And this is what we call conditioning, or the conditioned mind, at least from the Buddhist perspective. And to be conditioned is um, to be dependent on something else. That's, that's exactly how a program works in the computer world. If you look at a program, and you look at the programming statements, there are often like if-then statements. If this, then that, and a, a series of uh, programming commands are conditioned on the, on, you'd look at them as lines of code, and this line works because the line before it, and that line works because the line before it, and that's how it goes. And I think, again, we're, we're the same way. A conditioned thing is a thing that is affected by something else or dependent on something else. And again, from the Buddhist perspective, all things are conditioned, just like the car. The car is the whole of all of its parts. Everything is that way. And there's, a, there's an expression, the Buddha expressed this teaching about interdependent co-arising through a, a simple expression. And you can sometimes think about this as a formula. I like to call it the um, if-that formula. And it goes like this, when this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the cessation of this comes the cessation of that. Uh, so you could think of this as the this-that formula. Um, and it's a simple formula. And it's, help, it's a helpful formula to keep in mind when trying to understand why something is the way that it is. If you want to understand this, you need to look at that. If you want to understand that, then you need to look at this. And what we're referring to here is interdependence, right? The uh, 
interdependent co-arising is that understanding that all these things are linked. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh refers to this with the, uh, the par uh, not the parable, but the story uh, where he talks about looking at a flower. I've mentioned this multiple times in the podcast. But again, if I want to understand the flower, I need to understand sun and rain and clouds and dirt and all these other things that are um, on the surface, not part of the flower, but in a deeper perspective, you realize, well, that's exactly what makes the flower what it is. It's all the non-flower elements. So if I want to focus on being able to grow this flower in my garden, it's important for me to understand not just the flower, but all of the interdependent parts of the flower, right? And that's how I know, well, how often should I water it? How long should it be in the sun? And all those other things. So like all things, our mind is conditioned. And one of the most obvious and perhaps overlooked programs in our mind is actually language. Think about it. Words are simply collections of sounds that we've assigned meaning to. And by we, I mean society over the course of space and time. And we have a lot of languages and a lot of different words. But when and where you were born is going to determine the very first software that gets programmed into your mind, which is your language. Isn't it kind of crazy to think about it like that? We are using programming right now in order to communicate ideas and concepts from one mind to another. I think that's fascinating. Here I am using this collection of sounds that I understand to mean something, and, and you do too, and that's why we can transmit thought from mind to mind. And, and we're all using these collections of sounds and meanings that we've inherited from our parents, from our caretakers, or from society. That is what it means to be conditioned. So I don't think we need to look at conditioning as a bad thing, like, oh no, I need to I need to decondition my mind. It's not that. It's that the mind works off of conditioning. That's just how it is. So now we can run the same thought experiment that we ran before and take a look at the mind through this new perspective, which says, if my mind is conditioned, what conditions could I change that would result in me no longer being me? Uh, what if I didn't speak English? What if I only spoke French or Portuguese or Icelandic or anything, right? Would I still be me? Well, yeah, if I change that one variable about me, I would still be me, but I, I wouldn't be thinking in the same language. I'd be thinking in a different language and communicating in a different language. We'll try this with all the other aspects of mind. What if I had a different personality? Uh, personality can be inherited, so that could still fall under, uh, under form, but there are other aspects of personality that might be learned. You know, what if I had been born in this other place or this other culture or had this other religious upbringing or any any of those variables? And what if I uh, was able to replace my memories with a whole new set of memories? Had I been born somewhere else, uh, I would have a different set of memories. And it's interesting because none of these things are me, right? And speaking of memories, I was on a recent trip with my family to Mexico and we, we were visiting the old, my old stomping ground. So we went to the high school, um, to where I went to high school. And as we were getting there, it was really interesting to uh, notice how fallible the memory is. I would reach uh, a junction in the, in the road and say, okay, I remember turning left here and I think that's where the school is. And my mom was actually with us. Um, 
and she grew up in in the same city in Guadalajara and she would have different memories and she'd say no 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 it's to the right and I'd be like no it's to the left and sometimes she was right and sometimes I was right uh, as we were exploring all of our old stomping grounds we tried to go visit the house where I grew up the house where she grew up certain favorite restaurants uh, my school her school things like that but the whole time it was pretty fascinating to realize how um, how much you don't want to depend on your memory uh, because memory can get really fuzzy and then uh, your memory makes you feel like this is probably the right thing but it could be very much the wrong thing like nope you should turn right and I felt like I should turn left so I, I just think it goes to say something for how memories work and how feelings connected to memories arise so feelings are um, you know maybe something you shouldn't depend so much on just because I feel that this is true doesn't mean that it is true because my memory was faulty or my interpretation of an experience may be faulty or so on anyway um, so at the end of the day I can change my mind uh, in other words reconfigure my mind and I would still be me it just be the me with the new configuration of however that mind works very much like the end of the thought experiment with physical form in my body so the conclusion is therefore I am not my mind well now it seems like that might be a problem right if I'm not my body and I'm not my mind then what am I well just like the car I am the whole I am the collection of all the parts that make me me and this is where it becomes this is where the crucial connection takes place you know if we talk about how to feel whole and complete well here it is I can only be whole when I accept that I am all of my parts not one of them not a few of them but all of them now for me this is where these ideas come into play for the practical day-to-day -day existence that we're all experiencing for me this is where the magic happens what does it mean to be whole you know how do we feel whole and complete well let's look at the the definition of whole um, I researched just a, a couple of random dictionaries online and here are some of the the, de the definitions of being whole um, the the whole assemblage of parts or elements belonging to a thing in other words the entire quantity of something that's whole uh, a thing comprising of all its parts or elements that is something whole something constituting a complex unity a coherent system or organization of parts fitting or working together as one I like that one a complex unity um, that's that's to be human right aren't we a complex unity comprising of all all of its parts or elements and then there's this this definition which I also really liked constituting the total sum or undiminished entirety and there's the key right undiminished so now let's go back to conditioning for a moment I think one of the unfortunate beliefs that we've been conditioned to believe is that we are not whole and complete we're missing something we've been conditioned to believe that we're uh, missing something and uh, we go we go about living our lives believing that it's out there it's somewhere somewhere is that missing piece somewhere is that missing part and if I find it it will finally make me whole and then we try to alter our physical form you know based on these beliefs it might be oh I'll be complete when I lose more weight or if I could look younger if I could get rid of these wrinkles or if I could gain more muscles or whatever it is it's 
we, we treat it like it's one of those missing pieces. And if it's not physical form, it's mind, right? Maybe we're concluding that um, the feelings that I have, oh yeah, these aren't, you know, these aren't the feelings that I need. I'm an angry person. I don't want to be an angry person. I need to be a happy person. If I can get rid of anger and get more happiness and less sadness, then I'll be, you know, I'll be whole and complete. Or, oh, I'm someone who experiences depression or anxiety. Well, if I can get rid of that, then I'll be whole and complete. And this belief goes on. And the belief is that if I could just reconfigure myself into the proper configuration, then and only then will I be whole and complete. And here's the thing. It doesn't work that way. And if you want to know the, the, the single greatest light bulb moment for me as I encountered Buddhist concepts and started practicing Buddhism as a way of life, it was this. It was the realization that what I was looking for was something that couldn't be found. And why couldn't it be found? Because I was looking for something that didn't exist. I was looking for the right configuration. And there isn't a right configuration because impermanence and interdependence, right? This is because that is. And on top of that, these things are always changing. So that formula that you're looking at is never the same. And in my case, I was looking for a firm foundation to stand on. And it had never occurred to me that perhaps I could embrace the groundlessness of existence around me. Maybe I didn't need something to stand on because the ground that I thought I was standing on before turned out to just be a big rock that was also free falling with me in the infinite space of, of groundlessness. And that's the nature of reality, isn't it? I mean, imagine, imagine for a moment an infinite space where there's nothing to stand on. But in that space, there are clusters of, of stones and rocks. And on one of these rocks, there you find yourself standing on that rock. And you think that that rock is your solid ground, but it's not. It's a rock that's being hurled through space. And, and that's the funny thing. This isn't a metaphor. I'm literally describing the universe. And the clusters of rocks are the galaxies and the rock that we're standing on is Earth. And it's being hurled through space. And we stand on it with the sensation of having a firm, solid ground that we're standing on. And this ground is actually moving through space at an incredible speed and, and, and not just stationary, but it's like spinning around. And then throughout this whole realization, I realized what I had been looking for wasn't a firm foundation. It wasn't the firm foundation that was going to give me um, what I wanted, which was a sense of inner peace. Um, it was realizing that the search was over because there's no, nothing to search for. It's like there was this weight lifted off my shoulders. There was nothing to figure out. There was no missing piece. There was no, no one that I needed to be. There was no configuration uh, that was the key configuration. It was like, this is just me right now, how I am. And that's, that's it. And I suddenly felt whole and I felt complete. There was nothing to figure out. And in that realization was this glimpse that I can only describe as seeing things just as they are, no longer through the lens of my belief of how things should be, but just with the clarity of how things are. And everything was perfectly fine just the way that it was. Nothing needed to be other than how it was. And through that little glimpse, I looked at myself, I think for the first time, and saw myself truly as whole and complete. There were no missing pieces and nothing needed to change. 
And this was a, a radical realization because you'd have to know at the time, um, I was desperately trying to eliminate some of the parts of me that make me me. And in, in, in my case, I was trying to eliminate anger and hatred that I felt at that particular stage of life. I was trying to, to make sure I would never feel anxiety again. Because at that point, I had already had two anxiety or panic attacks. And that was a terrifying thing. I'd never experienced that before. Um, I was in the midst of my worldview had recently crumbled. Um, my marriage felt like it was crumbling. And I was just desperate to find, first of all, to reestablish a view of having the truth because I felt like I had lost that. And and then also to, to have a sense of certainty, to know that things will be all right. And I saw these feelings that I was experiencing as parts of me that were not part of the official configuration of how I should be. So I had to remove them. I had to eliminate them. And if I could get rid of them, then I would be whole and complete. But until then, I can't be whole and complete. And that's how I saw it. So then this shift happens, and suddenly I saw these emotions in, a, in an entirely different new light where I realized, no, they're not to be eliminated or, or vanquished. They just need to be looked at and understood. And that was a big shift. I stopped trying to push them away. And instead, I started to lean in, lean into these strong emotions and strong sensations. What is, what is hatred? Why do I feel hatred? Where do I feel it? Let's sit with it. Hatred. It's me again. You know, I've been pushing you away. I'm not going to do that anymore. Let's just sit here together. And yeah, man, it, and it was a powerful shift. Aside from the feelings, I, at the time I was also wrestling with the, the fear of uncertainty. Uh, all I wanted was a sense of certainty. I thought, you know, I want to find the missing piece that will confirm that everything's going to be all right. And I wanted to do whatever it would take to ensure that the feeling that I had of, of these things that I feared most in my life, like tragedy and loss, um, would be held at bay for as long as possible. And I think when you're in a, in a relationship, that's an easy thing to, to feel like, well, as long as I can ensure that the relationship will remain stable and I'm not going to lose this thing that I really don't want to lose, then I'll be okay. But that's not how it works. And I, I felt like the character in a story that's on a quest or on a mission, uh, and the story can't be complete until the quest is solved. And, he, and here I was suddenly stopped in my tracks. There, there was nothing to run towards and there was suddenly nothing to run away from either. And I felt, it felt like I was in a video game and I had been staring at the screen so long and I thought the game that I was playing was real and I was in the middle of the game trying really hard to save myself from this scary monster in the game. And at the most intense part of that battle, you know, it's like someone unplugged the game and the game stopped and the screen went black and I it forced me to look away and beyond the screen and what seemed so real only seconds ago that was the game suddenly I'm looking around saying oh my gosh none of that was none of that's real there is no need to be saved because there's nothing that I need to be saved from and that's how I suddenly felt about life um, by having a glimpse of looking at it outside of the lens of my conditioned views and my conditioned beliefs. So what does all this have with this core topic of how to feel whole, how to feel complete? Um, 
I think when we start to see ourselves as aggregate, uh, um, you know, the, a cluster of aggregates as the sum of several parts, we can start to experience what is often referred to as the seen through the illusion of self. You know, what do you see when you see through that illusion? Well, you see all the moving parts. It's like you you peek behind and you see that, oh my gosh, I'm all of these things. I'm, I'm very, I'm a complex system of things of, that are interacting and taking place. And yet none of those things is me. And then you see the answer to the question, uh, what makes you you? You see, well, I'm just interdependent, in, interdependent things and, and codependent arising. I, I see that in everything that I look at when I look at myself. And I think that this, this is actually something we can practice. I think we're so used to seeing things on one level, on the surface level, but rarely do we spend time looking at things a little bit deeper. It's easy to see this thing as this and that thing as that, but I do think it takes practice to start seeing the connection of the two. And I think the, the, the place where we're most blind when it comes to seeing this way is how we see ourselves. We go about our lives thinking we're incomplete and we're missing something. And the reality is that you're not, you're already whole. And that sense of wholeness comes not from finding what you think is missing, but from looking in and realizing that nothing's been missing all along. You can befriend and accept all of the moving parts that currently go into the configuration of what makes you who you are. And I think in that process, you'll experience something that maybe you haven't experienced before, which is a, a sense of inner peace and a sense of contentment, a deep appreciation for and understanding of the fact that when this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. And from the cessation of this comes the cessation of that. When you, when you start to see things through that formula, uh, the this-that formula, um, I think something magic happens. And that's, that's a concept that I wanted to share in this podcast episode. If you want to feel whole and you want to feel complete, look at what you feel is missing, analyze that, and look deeper. And if you can look deeper, then look deeper than that. Go as deep as you can in these causes and conditions of codependent arising of the of the various parts that make you you from uh, body and mind. Um, look at these things and what you'll find at the end of this, if you look deep enough and hard enough, you're going to find that nothing's missing. And the things that you've been pushing away, there's nothing wrong with them. So you, you're someone who has uh, feelings of anxiety. Yeah, we all do at some point, some more intense than others. Depression, sadness, like the, these have always been uh, token aspects of the human experience. And part of our misery comes from trying to get rid of them. This is like the, the second arrow type concept of stuff. It's like it's life is hard, right? Life, life is incredibly amazing and beautiful, but life is also hard. And the only thing that makes life hard even harder is to have it be hard and think that it's not supposed to be hard. So I must be doing something wrong or I must be missing something. No, no, life is hard. When you experience loss, you're going to experience all the things that entail the suffering of loss. And that's fine. It's normal. When I'm going to cry, I'm going to cry. 
When I'm going to lose a loved one, I'm going to process all of the thoughts and feelings associated with losing a loved one. If I'm upset because I uh, lost my job, yeah, you get upset when, when, when you lose things that you want. But it's that second layer where I'm thinking, oh, I'm not supposed to feel this. I'm not, I should be, you know, I should be configured differently, right? We, this is the very definition of suffering in the Buddhist uh, lingo. Uh, suffering arises when we want things to be other than how they are. So here we are with this, this dilemma. Well, how do I stop wanting things to be other than how they are? Because wanting things to be other than how they are uh, is, is already, that, that's the root of the problem. Well, then quit, quit trying. Just process things as they are. I'm angry. Okay, well, don't, I don't have to be angry that I'm angry. Just be angry. And what happens when you sit with anger? This is, again, like the whole story of the uh, sticky hair monster. It's not about conquering. It's not about outwitting. It's not about, it's about changing the relationship. And this thing that I used to not even be capable of communicating with because I hate that thing, like hatred is a good example, right? I hate that I hate. Oh, well then, well, good luck communicating with your hatred because you're just going to ignore it. Isn't that one of the core problems of our society right now? Our aversion to anything that's different than how we think it should be? Our solution is ostracize it. You're crazy for thinking that. We're not even going to talk now. I hate you, you know? It's like what happened? Why can't we why can't we sit with and understand? It doesn't mean you have to agree. It doesn't mean you have to condone someone's views or beliefs. It's not that. It's the simple art of communication that takes place where you can try to understand. Don't try to change, try to understand. And when you can do that with yourself, I think that's where it's most powerful learning to befriend the parts of you that you have been pushing away your fears your anxieties your strong emotions your um whatever it is i think that's where the power lies and this whole process of answering the question how do i feel whole and how and how do i feel more complete and i think you'll find in this uh, practice an amazing thing that can happen which is the realization that you are whole and complete and you're all of it. Uh, you're the, the whole kit and caboodle. <laughs> um, and all of these things that we've been pushing away, these are just parts of how we are at times. And they're, they're not permanent. So there's a lot to, to think about that. Let that stew in your mind. And I hope that this topic with these ideas has been something uh, helpful and beneficial. And I hope you can sit with this for a while and see what, where are these little areas of me that I'm pushing away and where are the little aspects of me that I'm uh, craving that I think are somewhere else? It's out there and I'm, and I'm out there looking for it and I'm running to it. We're almost always running away from something or running towards something. Well, what happens when you realize there's nothing to run to and nothing to run from? That's inner peace, right? That's the moment of inner peace. There's no more running. You just stop and it's like everything's fine as it is for right now. And I'm going to sit with these emotions and allow them to be. Everything's welcome at this table, you know? Everything can be here. Nothing needs to be different. All right, well, that's all I have for this uh, podcast episode, and I look forward to recording another one at some point in the future and sharing more thoughts on a different topic at some point later. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Until next time.